Amen. Well, let's pray together. Oh God, it's my prayer now as we come to your word and we sit under it, we dive into it, that you would show us in Jesus the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. Reveal yourself to us. Change us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. There was a woman named Gladys Howard. Gladys was a famous missionary to China in the 30s and in the 40s. But before she became a famous missionary, Gladys was a teenager growing up in London. And we know from her diary and her testimony that when she was a teenager, she wasn't happy with how she looked. Uh, For instance, as she was growing up, A lot of her friends had blonde hair, and she had black hair. She wanted blonde, but God gave her black, and she had angst over this. Uh, Probably more important to her was when she hit puberty as a teenager, all of her friends grew and kept growing, and she topped out really early. She never grew above 4'9", 4'10". Uh, She probably would have loved to have had the Hollywood ideal looks about her when she was a teenager. In fact, later, after she'd become famous, um, they made a movie about Gladys, and they based the movie off of her biography. Her biography, by the way, was called Small Woman. Probably hurt even worse if she struggled with how tall she was. But in the movie, uh, Hollywood cast an actress to play her part. The actress was Ingrid Bergman. Now, you might not remember who Ingrid Bergman is, but she was in Casablanca with Humphrey Bogart, and she's so tall that she was taller than Bogart in the movie. She's 5'9", and they cast her, and she has long, blowing, uh, long flowing uh, golden hair, everything that Gladys would not. The ridiculousness of her being cast like that If you're an NBA fan, think of somebody making a movie about my life and casting Giannis or Yoktik as me. It would just be ridiculous, way too tall. That was the Hollywood ideal that they thought of when they cast for the part of Gladys. Such is the wisdom of man. But the wisdom of God is different. It's richer. It's more textured. Later, as Gladys grew up, Into her 20s, she yearned to go to China. She had to wait until she was 28 years old. When she finally arrived by a circuitous route to China, she stood on the wharf in Shanghai, and she looked around and she noticed two things. One, every single person there had black hair just like her. And she also said as she looked around, every person there was also about her height. And she was able to turn to God and say, God, it looks like you know what you're doing after all. She was able to trust in the wisdom of God. And as we've been reading through the book of Romans together, and we come to wrap up chapter 11, we'll notice that the Apostle Paul is going to lock arms with Gladys, and he's going to exalt the wisdom of God. Verse 33 
is the banner over the entire text and the banner over the sermon today. If you miss everything, don't miss verse 33 where Paul says, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. Now think with me what you're going to face in your week coming ahead. You're going to have challenges. If you're a mother with young kids, you might just now be juggling the beautiful mess that summer break is. You might hear the complaints, the exasperation, the disobedience, the fit-throwing, the snapping at each other, and think, how in the world is God going to use this for anything good? What's going on in my life? How is this wise? Paul's answer is for you to grab a hold of this flag today. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. Some of you are at junctures of major transitions. Last week, we had Jaden and Sloan stand up. They're both graduating. Sloan doubled down and said, hey, I'm graduating and getting married. Double transitions. Not to be one up. Jaden's got an announcement to make today. Just kidding. <laughs> He's making sure you're awake. He's not even here. He's not getting married. But a lot of us are in transitions, and that can be so scary, so terrifying to say, God, I don't know what's coming next. Your mantra can be, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God's. Others of you are having even deeper struggles as as you sit here, the pains of intense suffering in your life. Have you doubting today? Is God even real? If he's real, does he even care about what I'm going through? Because if he cared, why would he let my dad die? Why would he let my child have this diagnosis? How come my in-laws aren't speaking to me? Is God even here? And Paul would say to you very pastorally today, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. So as we approach our text in chapter 11 of the book of Romans, we're just going to meditate on the beauty of God's wisdom, and we're going to see how we can apply that to what we're going through in our own lives. Let's get after it. Chapter 11, the book of Romans. Let's begin with just the very first part of verse 25, because right from the start, you can see why Paul pins this section on God's infinite wisdom. Let's read the first line, and I bet you can tell why he's given this to you. Very first line, verse 25, he says, Lest you be wise in your own sight, you catch that? In case you think you're wise, says Paul, let me shoot it to you straight. You're not. So the very beginning of your own wisdom is this humble admission that we often think that we are wiser than God. We're prone to trust our own wisdom Over God's wisdom, we're wise in our own eyes. 
like the couple I heard about that was going to couples counseling. They were with the counselor. The counselor turns to the man and he says, your wife says you never buy her flowers. The husband, exasperated, looked at the counselor and said, counselor, I didn't even know she sold flowers. He was wise in his own eyes. And we're like that. We tend to think we see things rightly, but our vision is blinded. It's blurry. Our sight is incomplete. So in Romans chapters 9 through 11, the topic has been salvation. But Paul's going to use this topic of salvation to show off the wisdom of God to us so that when we go through our lives, we'll be able to have a rock-solid foundation and base, and we will know that God is ultimately and infinitely wise. And we're to appreciate God's wisdom and salvation and trust it for the rest of our life. Let's keep going. Let's look, because he's going to give us an example of God's wisdom here in the plan of God's salvation, all right? He says in verse 25, if we keep going, Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of a mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Again, remember what he's doing. He's been talking about the salvation of ethnic Israel, how that works with the Gentiles. And he says, I'm going to give you a big view of my plan so that you can see how wise I am. Then when it comes to your life, you'll trust me. Trust that I am wise. So let's see how he breaks down God's plan of salvation here. First, he says it's a mystery. I'm going to share with you a mystery. He's not talking about a Sherlock Holmes kind of detective novel type of mystery. Rather, in the Bible, when you see this mystery, it is something that you could not see before, and now it's been revealed. That's the idea. I'm going to reveal something to you that you cannot have understand previously. Couldn't see it. And he's going to reveal it as a plan of salvation that has three aspects. Here's the first one. The first aspect of God's wisdom and salvation is what he calls here a partial hardening of the Jewish people, partial hardening of Israel. What in the world does that mean? Well, simply, he means before and when Jesus came, God's people, the Jewish people, rejected him by and large. There were exceptions, but by and large, they had a hard heart towards him. Paul's already explained this hardening idea back in chapter 9. He talked about Pharaoh and how God left Pharaoh in his sin, and he was hard towards God. Now God says, the first part of my plan is this hardening of my people towards the gospel. The second aspect of my plan, he says, is that while they are hardened, while they reject Jesus, all other people groups are going to begin to accept Christ. Gentile peoples, everybody that's a non-Jew, Gentiles are going to accept him. I love how he puts it here in the text. He says, they are going to come in. They're coming home. All the people that I intended to save that aren't Jews during this season that we're in now are going to come to Jesus Christ. In the New Covenant era, salvation, which used to be somewhat limited in scope to the Jewish people, is now catching on like wildfire. 
It's expanding. We talked earlier about our work in Asia. We now have estimates that uh, the number of followers of Jesus from the year 1980 to 2018, just about 40 years in the country of China, has increased 10% every year. For the past 40 years, the number of true followers of Jesus has increased by 10% every year. The Gentiles are coming home. And that's a part of God's wise plan. The third aspect of his plan, you can see it in verse 26. And in this way, what way? The way of Israel rejecting and then the season of the Gentiles coming in and accepting Christ. In this way, then all Israel will be saved. So get the picture. It's one of oscillation. There are seasons of salvation that God is saying. His sovereign wisdom has ordained that there are stages to his plan of salvation. First, Israel was hardened. Second, many Gentiles came to faith. And then at the end of the age seems to be that ethnic Israel, there will be an influx of Jews who begin to trust Christ. Oh, the depth and the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. Now, these are broad and deep waters. So let's zero in on the question, how does all of this show God is wise? Paul goes to great lengths to explain how his salvation plan is working How does that reveal him as a good and wise God? Well, you have to look at the results of his plan. So I just want to look at two of them with you quickly. The results of God's wisdom that we see here in the text. The first one is, by showing his plan of salvation, God reveals himself to be faithful and trustworthy. You can trust God. How do we see that here? Well, in verse 26, we're reminded that Jesus Christ came into the world midway through the story. What do you mean by that? Well, if you look in your Bibles and you find the Gospels, they're kind of towards the back of the Bible. That means there's a lot of stuff written before Jesus came into the story. What was happening In the stuff before Jesus, well, God created the world, then he chose a people, and then that people rejected Jesus. But while they were rejecting God, the Messiah, while they were rejecting God, God said, I'm still going to save my people. So get the picture. As things were going bad for Israel, remember, they were enslaved, and they were rescued, and they conquered, and they were in exile. They lost their dignity. They lost their identity. They lost their temple. They lost their homeland. They're losing everything. And yet, God had promised them that he would save them. I'm sure they were asking questions. God, are you worthy to be trusted? Because things aren't going so well. You said you're going to save us, but things aren't looking so good. Have you turned away from us? Will your kingdom not come. And we can't overstate this question enough. When Romans was written, Israel was still being ruled by the Roman Empire. There weren't a lot of Jews coming to God. 
So God's promises of saving the Jews appeared to be in jeopardy. People were asking the question, is God really faithful? But look in verse 26. God's going to refer back to some promises that he made and said, remember, verse 26, as it is written in the Old Testament, he's going to quote here Isaiah 59, Jeremiah 31, as it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. And what's he going to do? He's going to banish all ungodliness from Jacob. Hang on, there's a deliverer coming. And he quotes another sermon. Another text here, verse 27, he says, And this will be my covenant, that's from Jeremiah 31, this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Hold on, says Paul. God is going to fulfill those promises, and he's going to do it in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Have no fear, people of Israel. Jesus will deliver you. It's just going to be a future time after the fullness of all the Gentiles has come in. God will make good on his pledge to take away your sins. There's this idea here, if we keep reading here in verse 28. Paul's going to explain more about Israel. He says, as regards to the gospel... They're enemies. In other words, they're not accepting the gospel right now. Not in Paul's day, by and large, not in our day. It's mostly Gentiles coming to faith. They're enemies of the gospel, but it's for your sake, he says. But as regards to election, meaning people that God chose, the Jews are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. Don't miss verse 29. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. God has called the Jewish people and he's going to rescue them even though it doesn't look like it right now. When God calls you, you're as good as caught. This week, I saw a movie with my, with my family. It's called Jurassic Park Dominion. It's out there in the theaters. I'm not going to spoil it, but I am going to give you a teaser Because in the movie Jurassic World Dominion, I think, sorry, Jurassic World Dominion, we're introduced to this dinosaur. It's a new type of dinosaur. This dinosaur is trained, all right? It's trained that if someone has a pin light and they shine that pin light on you, the dinosaur is locked in. And he's going to chase you until he catches you. And there are scenes in the movie with people running from all these dinosaurs. And it turns out when the dinosaur locks in, you're as good as caught. And that's the idea Paul is presenting. God is faithful. He locked in on you a long time ago. And he's chasing the Jewish people. Why? Because he's trustworthy and he's faithful to his promises. Eventually he will make good. The Jews will be saved after this time of Gentile salvation. All the Jewish people who trust in Jesus will be delivered. Consider another movie. This one's more of a classic, a throwback. Recently with my teenagers, I watched the 90s film Braveheart. Remember Braveheart? If you haven't seen it, 
Don't know where you've been, but if you haven't seen it, it's about the nation of Scotland being oppressed by England. And the nickname of the English king is the Hammer of Scotland. That's his nickname. So if you're nicknamed the Hammer of Scotland, you know things weren't very good for the Scottish people. In the movie, we see the heavy boot of King Edward all over the Scottish people. Things look desperate, but all of a sudden what happens? There's a warrior that comes forward. He's courageous. He fights for the people and ends up he dies a sacrificial death so that the people might have their freedom. That's the picture Paul is giving of Jesus Christ. There will be someone who comes. It is Jesus. He will be the one who frees the people of Israel from their sin, and he can free us too today. If you put your faith and hope in Jesus and say, I cannot save myself. I'm not my own deliverer. I am sinful, but Jesus is not. I'll trust in his righteousness instead of my righteousness. I'll trust that he's my substitute for my sin. He will be my treasure over everything else in the world. If we do that, God will save you. That's how he's wired. He loves to save his people. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. So that's the first result of God's wisdom. He proves himself faithful, trustworthy. You can trust God. The second result of God's wisdom that we see in the text here comes out in verse 30. We'll look at verse 30 and following. Paul writes this. For just as you, that's the Gentiles in the church of Rome, just as you at one time were disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they, ethnic Israel, they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. Notice that repeat of mercy, mercy there. Verse 32, for God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. The second result of God's wise plan is mercy. God will be kind to you. God will be merciful to you. I'm sure in the first century church, as it was growing among the Gentiles, Paul anticipated a problem, and it was this, pride in the heart of the Gentiles. They're looking around, they're saying, oh, you Jews, not many of you are being saved. You're so disobedient. Not like us, the Gentiles, right? And see the pride that Paul is addressing here. We're wonderful people. We're following Jesus. You're rejecting him. There's some self-righteousness and pride there. And Paul replies, wait a minute. All people are disobedient and all people deserve death. It is only the kindness and the mercy of God as revealed in this plan of salvation that is any hope at all for God's people to live and have full life. Author Tom Schreiner sums up this section with these words. He says, the focus is on the Gentiles and Jews and God's plan to dispense his mercy upon everybody. God structured history so that his mercy to the Jews would be highlighted in the period in which the Gentiles rejected God. 
With the arrival of the gospel, however, the situation has been reversed. Now the greatness of his mercy to the Gentiles is unveiled, whereas the Jews are blinded and disobedient. Nonetheless, this is not the last word for Israel. God will lift the darkness and shine on them in a saving way again. Thereby they will recognize that their salvation is truly a merciful gift and not deserved. God's graciousness in bestowing mercy on both Jews and Gentiles is trumpeted in this section. God arranges his saving workings in such a way that no one can boast that they deserve salvation. Jesus earns it for you. Jesus rescues you. Jesus pays your debt. Jesus washes you clean. Jesus is your righteousness. Jesus is God's mercy towards you. And the glory of his mercy is on display in salvation for you and me and the entire world to see. God will be merciful to you. God will be kind to you. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. Now let's review, all right? God has given you this final section of Romans for a purpose. It's to convince you that he's wise, all right? If you get lost in all the theological mumbo-jumbo, that's okay. Just remember, he's talking about the Jews and the Gentiles and how he saved them so that you will see how wise he is. Two major ways that shine through. One, he's a God who keeps his promises. He's trustworthy. And two, we can be sure that he's merciful and full of kindness. So now we're going to talk about what it's like to live within God's wisdom. But as we do it, we need to take what we've just learned and apply it to our lives, okay? So let's think about this, if you would. You've got two hands, two tools of God's wisdom, all right? What I want you to do is hold on to these tools as we go to thinking about your life, all right? One hand, we have this word, God will be kind to you, all right? Let's hold on to that. The other one, you can trust God. God will be kind to me. I can trust God. Those are the two handles that we must take as we look at our life. God will be merciful to me, and I can trust God. Don't put them in your pocket. Hold on to them, because now we're going to talk about your life, all right? The rest of this chapter is the Apostle Paul erupting in worship. He's beside himself. He's floored by the beauty of God. He's treasuring Christ. He just takes a moment and he erupts in worship, but he's doing more than that. He's trying to teach you something. I saw this week, I was reminded with some pictures about May 7th, 1945. There's some pictures up here. This was the day in Europe when Nazi Germany signed the official surrender act and it was announced in London and they had a big party. People celebrated, ah, the war is over. But it dawned on me as I was watching these young people celebrate, they're celebrating more than just the end of the war, right? They're celebrating that every day forward of their life 
It's not going to be rationed anymore. There's not going to be bombings anymore. Everything has changed from this moment on because the war is over. Paul is erupting in worship because he loves Jesus, because he loves God, and he also realizes that this changes everything. Moving forward, if we hold on to these dual pegs of God's wisdom, he's going to be kind to me. I can trust him. Changes every part of our lives. Our worship, our right understanding of the Scripture changes our worldview. Look at verse 33. Oh, the depth and the riches and wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable are His judgments and how inscrutable His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Who's been His counselor? Who has given a gift to Him that He might be repaid? For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be the glory forever. Amen. Paul's celebrating God's wisdom. Now we ask the question, in what areas of our life can we apply God's wisdom? I'm just going to take two briefly here. The first one is suffering, trials, heartaches, pain. Think about your own life here. Look at verse 33. Verse 33. Paul says, How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable are his ways. Look how wise God is. He uses two words here to describe God's wisdom. First one is unsearchable. The second one is inscrutable. I must tell you the truth. I wanted to know precisely what inscrutable meant. So I had to look for it on Google. Turns out that it means unsearchable. The word was searchable on Google, and it means unsearchable. They mean the same thing. God's wisdom is beyond understanding, enigmatic, impenetrable. Now, I'd like for you to consider the suffering and pain in your life that you might see this week. Dare you take a glance at it? Dare you push on the bruises for just a moment? Remember, this is Paul pastoring you as he writes this. When you see evil and brokenness in your life, in your world, you're going to question God's wisdom. Part of that questioning is okay. Talked this week with some of you, and we were talking about how the tension of faith is made stronger by honest questioning. Like a rubber band, if you don't pull it back, it would just lay dormant and flimsy. So faith is meant to be bolstered by questioning, but there's a type of questioning that forgets God's wisdom. So remember what we saw in Romans 11 firsthand, I can trust God, right? Let's remember that as we think about our own problems. I can trust God. I saw how he saved Israel. He said he's going to do it, and he's doing it. I can trust him. Now allow that to speak your pain. How do we do that? Well, I saw a message three years ago by Paul Tripp, and he was speaking on his own suffering. Back in 2019, he had his body racked and wrecked by physical pain. He just went to the doctor on a Sunday afternoon. They told him that he was losing 85% of his kidney function. 
his body began to deteriorate. And he was asking these questions. Why is this God? This doesn't seem wise to me. It seems wiser to let me live a healthy way. That way I can serve you better. And he said, after wrestling with the question of God's goodness and his own suffering, he came to a conclusion. And that conclusion was God was wisely working for his good even when Tripp couldn't see it. God is going to be faithful to me. He held on to that. This is the words that he said. I read them this week. I wanted to share them with you. This is a quote from Paul Tripp. He said, God cares about your body. This is as his was withering. He's the creator of your body, but his primary purpose is to rescue you from your bondage to sin. When you're slavery to self, to do the thing that you cannot do for yourself. You can run from a situation. You can run from a location. You can run from a circumstance, but you cannot run from yourself. You and I are not just in need of a comfort, not just in need of predictability, not just in need of temporary happiness. We are in need of a redeemer. Why did he say this? He realized that his suffering fit within the wisdom of God, even though he didn't have all of his questions answered, God was being faithful to him. I can trust God. He is being faithful to me because he's showing me more of my Redeemer in Jesus Christ. Again, that doesn't mean that his pain went away. It didn't. It didn't mean all of his questions were satisfied. They were not. But he did realize God was being faithful here in his pain. His suffering made him depend more on Jesus than he ever had in his whole life. God is faithful in your confusing times of pain and suffering. He's given you what you need most, your Redeemer. Tripp's story of personal suffering reminded me of some other words that I wrote, read before. Uh, these are from a guy named Rankin Wilborn. He, read that, he wrote that book on the uh, Holy Spirit. Uh, it's a really good book called Union with Christ. Uh, you can pick it up. But he also writes about suffering here. And I wanted to read you a quote at the risk of quoting you to death. Here's one more quote uh, from Rankin Wilborn on this topic. He says, Jesus, the perfect image of God and the perfect human being, shows us that a fully human life must include suffering. And that we can only become the man or woman God intends us to be through suffering. Jesus, who was without sin and never did anything to deserve the Father's displeasure, was made perfect through suffering. The author of Hebrews dares to say that Jesus learned obedience through what he suffered, Hebrews 5.8, and that this part of what makes him our compassionate high priest is able to help us in our time of need. If Jesus, the perfect child, had to learn how to trust and obey through suffering, how much more necessary is it for you and for me? One thing that Wilborn was pointing out to us is that in our pain, there are mercies of God to be found. Remember, that's the second hand. The first hand we learned in Romans 11, I can trust God. Second hand we're holding on to, he will give me mercy. One of the mercies that Rankin Wilborn speaks of here 
that God is merciful in that he's perfecting you in your trials, in your doubts, in your pain, in that relationship that's tanking. God is perfecting you in your trials. What a father we have to turn trouble into trusting. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. Let's go to one other area of our life where we often struggle holding on to these two handles from Romans 11. I can trust God. He will be faithful. I can trust him. He will be faithful. Here's another area that's related to suffering sideways. Sister. It's called waiting, right? Waiting. Another place where we are prone to doubt God's wisdom in our life is when we have to wait. Relationships not progressing anymore. I'm going to have to wait on that. Change in another person or yourself is not happening. Going to have to wait on that. I have a financial or material goal. Turns out I can't meet that right now. I'm going to have to wait on that. Why must I wait for these things, God? Well, look back in verse 34 and 35. Paul, again, he's pastoring you. He's going to give you three questions. They're a quote from the Old Testament, and they're meant to frame your mindset when you're waiting and you're questioning God. What's the first question, 34 and 35? Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? And three, who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? Let's look at the first two questions real quick. They're from Isaiah 40. And their meaning is pretty clear. None of us are in the position to see what God sees, right? None of us can really give God advice. The third question is a little less clear, but it's a citation from Job 41 when he says, Who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? The idea, the point of it is none of us have ever added to God's wisdom. So he's a debtor to no one. When it comes to wisdom. So how does this help us when we're anxiously waiting for God to act? How does that help us? Well, one thing we can keep in mind is that God is faithful while we're waiting. I can trust him. God will be faithful to me. Just like the Jews were tempted to doubt God's faithfulness while they were waiting to be delivered from the Messiah, we too will be tempted in this way. We'll have to wait. I had to wait this week. I was in a situation where a lot of you guys find yourself sometimes. I have to get a motor vehicle. I got to get a car. So I'm searching online all the time. And we finally found one that matches. It's in our budget. It's the type we wanted. Call the person up. And I said, thinking about buying your car, I'd just like to get it inspected. Do you mind meeting me and my mechanic? And he'll inspect it. And if it goes well, I'll buy it from you. He said, sure. He comes on down there. And uh, roll it into the bay, and my mechanic inspects it. And I'm standing there with the seller when my mechanic comes out. My mechanic, <laughs> he's hilarious, he turns to the seller and he says, you're going to sell this car. And he turns to me and says, it's not going to be to Travis. <laughs> he's not going to buy it. Turns out it had some issues that my mechanic knew that I wouldn't want to deal with. So now I'm waiting again. I'm driving back home. Not in the new car, but in my old car. And I decide, and we'll take this up with the creator of the universe. 
So I turn to God, and it's as if, and I don't know if you've had this moment, you've ever played the card game Rook, and you're playing with a partner, and it's going around, and you're looking at your cards, and you're like, this would be a perfect time to play that trump card. Come on, trump it, trump it. That's the way I'm talking to God. (laughs) I'm having to wait here. God, this would be a perfect time to exercise your sovereignty. Make this work out. That's not what he wanted. In his great wisdom, he wanted me to wait. I must trust that he is faithful. I can trust God. He's faithful. What Romans 11 has taught me, I can trust him. Also, he's going to give me mercy. He's going to be kind to me. I read an article by author Courtney Rezzi. It's called Let Waiting Grow. And in it, she reminded me of what God is doing in his infinite wisdom while I have to wait. First thing she said, she reminded me of 1 Peter 2.11 where I'm called a sojourner here. Remember that passage? This is not my home. And waiting will remind you, this is not my home. Waiting to buy a car, it feels sideways, it feels out of balance, it feels off kilter. It feels like I feel when I go to Malaysia and I'm in a different culture, everything just feels funky. That's what waiting is like. But it reminds me, don't get too comfortable here in this space, on this earth. You're made for another earth. This is not your home. Secondly, waiting can teach you that time doesn't march to my own drum. One thing she said in this article that was very helpful, she said, try thinking about time as more collective than individual. How do we think about time? Well, I think about my day off, right? My downtime, my free time. But waiting teaches us that time is more collective. In other words, when I have to wait, I don't really get what I want in my time, right? All of a sudden, I have some time freed up if I have to wait, and I can use that time to serve others socially with the gospel. That's what waiting teaches me. But also, waiting teaches me something else. I read a quote from Betsy Howard Child said this about waiting. I just thought it was helpful. Regardless of what we're waiting for, it's easy to feel discontent when things aren't going as planned and our dreams are delayed, especially when questions of why and how long remain unanswered. God uses seasons of waiting to teach us patience and make us more like himself. But sanctification is not the only purpose God has in mind. When we wait faithfully with unmet longings, we become a powerful picture of the bride of Christ waiting for the day when he returns and God's kingdom reigns. One mercy God is giving you is he's teaching you what it's like to long for Jesus. When you have to wait for a used car or wait for anything in your life, you become a picture of the church waiting for Jesus, and that is a mercy Famous pastor Jonathan Edwards once said, Oh God, stamp eternity on our eyeballs. What did he mean by that? Help us, God, to look towards heaven as we're living this day. Make us into people living for the new world. 
stamp eternity on our eyeballs. Waiting can do that, and it can be a mercy of God in your life. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. Now, our text ends here in verse 36. Listen to how he wraps things up. He says, For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. God in Christ is the source. He's the mean. He's the result of every life circumstance. From him and through him and to him are all things. Sounds like a good place to end a service. Sounds like a good word to end the book on. But he doesn't end the book. Why doesn't Paul end the book? He said amen. (laughs) Supposed to be over, right? He keeps going in chapter 12. Now, our Bibles are broken up into chapters, but Paul didn't write his letter with chapters, right? Just for you to help look it up. But in his letter, immediately after saying everything's about God and his wisdom is superior, look what he writes. If you sneak over and look at verse 1 of chapter 12, he writes, So I appeal to you, therefore. Therefore, what's that mean? Because all I said about God's wisdom, now I'm going to ask you, I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice holy and acceptable to God, which is your worship spiritually. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. In other words, now go on living. Go on resting in the wisdom of God. I'm not just writing chapters 9 through 11 just so you would know it, although I want you to know it. Not just writing it so you would celebrate it. I want you to celebrate it. I'm writing it so you'll go on living Well, in light of the wisdom of God, what's that look like? You know I can trust God, and I know He's going to be faithful. You hold on to those two handles as you walk through your life. I remember back in 2002, when Queen Elizabeth, the Queen Mother of the United Kingdom, she passed away, she died. And as a whole nation was mourning, they sung this hymn at her funeral, written by Walter C. Smith. I love it. It's a good place to close. Listen to the words of this hymn. He wrote, Immortal, invisible, God-only wise, in light, inaccessible, hid from our eyes. Most blessed, most glorious, the ancient of days, almighty, victorious, thy great name we praise, great Father of glory, Pure Father of light, thine angels adore thee, all veiling their sight. Of all thy good graces, this grace, Lord, impart. Remove thou the veil from our faces and heart. All laud we would render, oh, help us to see. Tis only the splendor of light hideth thee. And now let the glory to our gaze unroll through Christ in the story and Christ in the soul. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. Let's pray together. God, we pray this prayer with Walter Smith 
open our eyes so that we would see Jesus as we see Jesus in the plan of salvation, how he rescues, how he is your kindness, he is your mercy. As we see these things, oh God, let us put them to work. May they be the pillow we lay our head down on at night. God, unveil your glory to us as we trust in your wisdom, as we trust in your mercy, even as we go today from this place. We won't stay here. We're going to stand up and we're going to leave. And I pray that you impress upon us the beauty of your wisdom for us in Jesus Christ. I pray these things in his name. Amen.